Well, my name's Chris. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'm the, I guess you would call it a lead pastor, senior pastor. What do you call? What is my title? I don't know. You call a lot of different things nowadays. Some of you might be familiar with a senior pastor. Knucklehead is not one of them. I heard that. And so I'm not going to be preaching today. And so uh, several weeks ago, I asked a, a very dear person to me and my wife, Ralph Marks, and I asked him if he would fill the pulpit and he would preach the <coughs> word of God. And so I am so excited to be sitting in a chair like you are and hear the word of God preached. It's been a long time since I've had that opportunity. And so I'm going to be sitting over there and you're sitting where you are. And here's what we do when we, we sit in those chairs. We say, God, I want to hear from you, right? Isn't that what we do when we hear preaching? Uh, try not to evaluate. Try not to you know, use all that natural thing. Use all the supernatural that God has given you to be able to hear the word of God so that you can be changed and I can be changed. And so Ralph uh, came to launch. Well, it wasn't launch, brother. Was he came to our launch? Yes, yes I did. Yep, yep. With his family, and so we launched on uh, Palm Sunday, March 25th this year. And uh, Ralph heard about us, and uh, he must have seen us online or, or something like that. And he, he, uh, <clears throat> social media texted me or however that worked, and we met for breakfast, and and uh, we had a nice conversation. And I got to know Ralph, and Ralph has been a huge blessing to me. In fact, he's pastored for many years all over the country, and so uh, he gave me his library because all of my books were up in Massachusetts. So when I, I got here, I didn't have any resources, and so he gave me his library. And so I'm going to have Ralph come up here. Come on up here, brother. This is Ralph Marks, and he's going to bring the word of God. Can we welcome He's been coming to Harvest ever since launch, and so he's going to bring the word of God. All right, Ralph. Interesting. Good morning, church. When you come to a place like this and you have to bring your own pulpit. So let me, let me get this pulpit up a little bit here. How are you? Happy Labor Day. Penn State won. They had me worried very much, but, uh, but they won. I asked my wife before I came this morning, I said, do you, have any, uh, do you have any suggestions for me? You know what she said? Just one. I said, what's that? She said, if you have to use the bathroom, make sure your mic is off. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? So good to be with you and uh, to have an opportunity to share. Actually, that happened once at Congregational Bible Church in Marietta. I forgot to turn the mic off, and she's never forgotten that. It's a little bit embarrassing. Actually, we uh, just love... Uh, Chris and Lisa, and uh, we were coming back from being out of town somewhere, I don't remember where it was, but coming back into Reading, we said, why don't we, uh, why don't we stop and, and have something to eat? After all, it's our wedding anniversary. So uh, I said, well, who could we have to eat with us? Well, we had just met Chris and Lisa. I said, why don't we call them? So they said, well, we can't meet you at 6, but we'll meet you at 6.30 at Applebee's. So we met Chris and Lisa at Applebee's at 6.30 in the evening, and we spent two and a half hours together just talking about ministry and preaching and what builds a church and how God blesses people and that kind of thing, getting some insight as well into their lives, getting to know them a little deeper. About halfway through the session, I said, so glad you guys could celebrate our wedding anniversary with us. And they said, what, this is your wedding anniversary? We said, yes. They said, how many years? We said, 53. Chris says, you've been married to the same woman for 53 years? I said, yes, indeed. And uh, 
He said, well, when were you married? And I said, March of 1965. And Chris got the funniest look on his face. I wish you could have seen it. And he said, oh, no, you were married before I was born. I wasn't born till 1966. So, yes, I did give him 38 boxes of books in my library, which my wife was glad to get out of the attic. And uh, then he asked me to preach. He has my library. He asked me to preach. But, uh, but that's why his preaching is so good. He's got my library. Now he's good. What scares me, however, is that he's, he's reading what I wrote in my books. And, you know, I underline and scribble in my books and make notes in the margin. And one of the things that I remember writing in the margin of one of those books was an arrow pointing to something. And in the side, it said this. Take heed, you idiot. That was meant for me. Now, he hasn't said he's run across anything like that yet, but, but uh, my connection with Harvest Bible Chapel is that my daughter sings on the worship team at Harvest Bible Chapel, Spring Lake, Michigan. And uh, every time we go there, the Word of God is taught powerfully, and we just, we just love being there by... Uh, Pastor Wissen and his son Calvin, they do a fantastic job. So that's our connection. She was here not too long ago, and uh, we had her here. I want to recognize just uh, my small group. I belong to a small group that belongs to another church. and They'll probably leave here and go to the other church. But they're sitting in, in the back here, and I just want them to stand for a minute. You don't have to make a commitment to this church, but just stand for a minute so they can see who my small group is. There they are. It is great to have you guys. Thank you so much. And uh, we were just on a scavenger hunt the other day with them, and I was, uh, our leader of our small group said, now look, be safe. Let me pray for safety. I'm thinking, why is he praying for safety? It's just a scavenger hunt. So I got in one of the cars. There were 12 of us. And uh, the guy who was driving my car is here today, and I kid you not, I came back and I said, I now know why you were praying for safety. All the time we were riding, I had my hand on the strap up here, not a seatbelt, because I had to get out and take pictures to prove that we were at that spot. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me, this guy that's driving the car listens consistently to James McDonald and walk in the word. I'm okay. So we got back. I'm kidding you, Randy. That was, that was a good time. I just want to say to you before I get started here that you, you guys are really fortunate and that you are really privileged to stand with Chris and Lisa. Uh, we're so glad they're here to be your pastor, pastor's family, and we believe that God is going to do great things here in this body. Your event the other day was wonderful at the park. I didn't get there in time for the service because I was playing trumpet in another church, but I got there in time for the food and the party, so it was still pretty good. But that was wonderful to see how God brought people out. So you're privileged to support them in the establishment of a good Bible teaching, Bible preaching church here in the city of Reading, which is desperately needed, really. And, I, and I'm trying to remember, it was a small group I was in. Chris was leading it. It was all men, and sitting in that small group, 
I realized something. This is the right man for this job. This is the right man for this position. How many of you are glad, delighted that they didn't go to Florida? Yeah, amen, there you go. I'm right with you on that. Okay. You know, I was asking God about what it is that he would like me to share with you today. And uh, what hit me was a text in 2 Timothy 2.21. Now, this is not the passage I'm preaching on, but kind of a foundational concept I want you to hear. 2 Timothy 2.21, we, we didn't, I didn't give it to put up on the screen or anything, but it says this. Now, Paul is at the end of his life. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. Okay? He's going to get executed. And he says to Timothy, bring the parchments and uh, come see me if you can, bring my cloak. But among other things that he said was this. He said, Timothy, if you will keep yourself from these, you will be a vessel fit for the master's use, a vessel unto honor, prepared for every good work. And that verse kind of stuck with me as something, an idea that I want to share with you today. That's not the text, because if you keep yourself from these, you would be reading the context of that verse. But this is a truth that actually pervades through the scripture. So I want to share that with you. Uh, if you are to be a vessel fit for the master's use, right? First thing is to know the master. I like the emphasis on... Anybody need the Lord? Anybody has any family member that needs the Lord? If you're going to be a vessel fit for the master's use, you have to first of all know the master. And I have the sense that you in the congregation want to be a vessel fit for the master's use, as I do. Now let me share with you just a minute, because the appeal of Romans chapter 12 that I'm going to talk to you about, is really based on Romans 1 to 8. 1 to 8 in the book of Romans is doctrine. 12 to 16 is the practical aspect of the book. And the key verse to the book of Romans is 1.16, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is what? The power of God unto salvation. The word is dunamis, dynamite. The dynamite power of God unto salvation. If you want to be a vessel fit for the master's use, you need to, first of all, make sure that you've experienced his mercies. I would love to hear your testimony. We heard one here a couple weeks ago in the service. It was wonderful to hear that testimony. I'm going to share with you mine for just a minute. However, the problem is you have to go back to 1957. Anybody know who the president was in 1957? Dwight David Eisenhower. Wow. Some of you weren't even born by 1957. I'm thinking of that. Uh, but Dwight Eisenhower was a president, and uh, I was attending a little Evangelical United Brethren church up in Northumberland, Pennsylvania, which is near Sunbury, about 50 miles uh, north of Harrisburg. And I had a very godly pastor, Reverend Frank Sanders. He had invited a team to come in from Monona Lake, Indiana, called the Emmons family. 
And uh, they, they were musicians, and I'm into music, so I really love that. But the thing that got me was that these musicians <laughs> were going to play on converted liquor bottles. Converted liquor bottles. And so I said, I got to go there, man. I got to hear this. So I went, and I'm sitting way up in the far part of the balcony, and the evangelist stands up, and he says, how many of you know President Eisenhower? And our hands went up, yep. We do. And then he said, do you know him really, or do you just know about him? Do you just know of him? And we realized we just know about him. And then he leaned into the mic and he said, you know, that's the way it is with many of you about Jesus Christ. You know about him. You know of him. But he said, you don't know him personally. He said, I'm going to tell you tonight how you can know Christ personally. And he preached, and I was up in the balcony, and I came to the front, knelt at the altar. My pastor met me there, and Pastor Sanders said, Ralph, why did you come? And I said, because the man said I could know Christ personally. He said, do you know how to do that? And I said, yes. He said, how? I said, I don't know. So he proceeded to share Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if you will confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he led me in a prayer of confession. Now, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the dynamite power of God that explodes in our lives. In 1957, don't pay too close attention to this, I was a freshman in high school. So for those of you who are thinking, how old is this guy? All right, it was 1960. You know, I graduated high school, so now you can figure that out. But there I was, a freshman in high school coming to Christ. The gospel exploded in my life, and I received that total change of trajectory in my life as the power of gospel exploded. Fast forward to, uh, I don't know when, many years ago, I was pastoring a church in Hollywood Hills, Florida, which is just south of Fort Lauderdale, north of Miami, and uh, a doctor came into my congregation. Dr. Marty Triber, and uh, Dr. Triber was head of uh, gastroenterology at Miami-Dade Medical Center. I had never met him, but he was dating one of the women in our church, and uh, the interesting thing about that is that she was a Christian, he was not, and my leaders of the church were kind of upset that they were living together and this kind of thing, you know, and I understand that. But when somebody visited our church, we visited them. And so I went to visit Dr. Martin Triber in his home and his companion, sat down and shared with him some things and talked about the gospel. And I knew he was, had a Jewish background, so he might not feel friendly toward the Messiah. But we talked and we shared. I left. I didn't feel there was anything special about that. But then he started coming to church at Hollywood Hills. And he came regularly for three months. At the end of three months, he was walking out the door, and he, he shook my hand, and he leaned over, and he said to me, Pastor, I've been coming to your church for three months. I've listened to everything you preach. I'm trying to do everything you tell me I'm supposed to do, but I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. I said, Marty, let me finish shaking hands. Why don't you go over to my office, which was adjacent to the worship center, 
I'll meet you there in just a little bit, and we'll chat about that. So he went over to my office. I finished greeting people, and then I went to the office. And I went in, and I said to him, Marty, the reason you feel like you're not getting anywhere is because you have to start. You haven't really begun. You see, you have to accept Christ as your Messiah. And you've heard the gospel, and you've heard the message, and you've heard the truth. So here's what you have to do. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Marty said, I want that. I'm ready for that. We both knelt there at the couch. And Marty prayed to receive Christ. Now, all of a sudden, as the gospel of Christ, the power of the gospel exploded in Marty's life. And he became a new creature in Christ. There was a new hunger for the word of God. He kept throwing questions at me. He was reading and researching and learning and growing. So exciting to see what the gospel does in our lives. Uh, one other. I just read this a couple weeks ago, the story of uh, John Wimber, how he came to Christ the founder of the Vineyard Movement. John Wimber came to Christ. Very interesting. He went to downtown Los Angeles to try to borrow some money from a, a drug dealer friend. And he said there was this guy that, that walked on the street past him. And he had this sandwich board on, you know, the, the placard. The front of it said, I am a fool for Christ. And he thought, well, that's true. You are indeed a fool. Walking around with the placard, the sandwich board, you are a fool. And when he passed John Wimber, the back of it said, whose fool are you? And it stunned him. But he left, and he never gave another thought to that issue. Uh, uh, two years later, he found himself in a Bible study and his wife was sobbing her eyes out, her heart out. She was confessing her sins to God and, and getting saved and getting born again two years later. And he's sitting there thinking to himself, this is absolutely ridiculous. This is a good woman. Why is she doing all this? And I'm embarrassed, basically saying to himself, I'm embarrassed by her show of display of emotion. He said, I would never do that. And right at that point, God brought that picture of the placard back. I am a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? Fascinating enough, God used that to convict him, just bringing that picture back to bring the conviction. And he found himself on his knees, sobbing, asking God to forgive him and to give him everlasting life. I'm talking about Romans 1.16. The gospel of Christ explodes in our lives and creates a new trajectory, a new life, a new power. That's the power of the gospel. In order for you to be a vessel fit for the master's use, this is where you begin. First of all, you have to know the master, right? But there's more to it than that. Obviously, there's more involved in that. And Chris and I, when we get together, we talk about preaching and stuff. So, and I'll say to Chris, uh, that was a good sermon. What was your big idea? <clears throat> and uh, 
So I better give you a big idea because he's going to ask me, what was your big idea? We go back and forth on this a little bit. I can be a vessel fit for the master's use when I know the master, when I yield myself totally to the master, and when I faithfully walk in the word. All right, there's the big idea. In Romans 12, you have the appeal. It's, the appeal is the mercies of God. It's because of what God has done in Romans 1 to 8. Now you come to Romans 12. The recipients are brothers. I beseech you on the basis of the mercies of God. You can put that up if you have it. Yeah. Romans 12.1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, based on the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable spiritual service, or some translations have your reasonable act of worship. Romans 12.1 is not telling you how to become a Christian. That's Romans 1-8. Romans 12.1 is telling you what to do after you become a Christian. When this issue comes to the front in your life. So the question is this. What am I going to do with this new life that God has given me? I know I'm saved. I know Christ. I've got my ticket to heaven. I've got the future with him. But what am I going to do with this new life that Christ has given me? Romans 12.1 says, you're going to give it back to him in full and total surrender. Now, you may express that differently based on your background, but at some point in our Christian walk, you will be confronted with that idea. There has to come a point of surrender. So, you gave your heart to God in salvation, now give him your body in consecration. And it is an aorist imperative. I don't want to get pedantic with the Greek here, but an aorist imperative gives this impact. The text really is saying you want to make a, a once-for-all decisive presentation of your body. Once for all, decisive presentation of your body to God. I was in a restaurant the other day with a couple other preachers and trumpet players. It was actually in Zoops and Why I'm Missing. And we're having a good time, good discussion. We got just had been together. We played for about an hour and a half of trumpet trio stuff, and then we went out to eat. So it's Larry, Robert, and Ralph. So Larry, sitting on this side, says, you know, he says, I've been reading uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Oh, he said, I like Martin Lloyd-Jones stuff. Well, he says, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book says that you need to have a second distinct work of grace. But I'm a Baptist, he said. And I've always been taught that when you get converted, when you come to Christ, you get all of the Holy Spirit at conversion. And I think, okay, okay, where's this going? So then he looks at me and he says, what do you think, Ralph? So here I am trying to enjoy my soup. We're going to get into a little theological discussion here. But I said, well, first of all, I really like Martin Lloyd-Jones. The second thing is that I don't like that term, the second distinct work of grace. 
even though I've heard it many times because I think there's a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. It doesn't end there, obviously, but I think that Romans 12.1 probably illustrates what he's talking about, where you make a decisive, once-for-all presentation of your body to God in consecration. Has that ever happened to me? May of 1960, I'm sorry I have to go back in these old dates. By the way, my son Tori is here with, uh, with the family, Tori and Kristen. Kristen was really happy to see, uh, see Penn State win. I'm sure she has a, a graphic arts degree from Penn State. And my sister is here, Tracy, as well. Uh, so it's great, great to have all these folks with us today. May 1961, I was traveling uh, with a musical group called uh, Youth in One Accord from Houghton College in the eastern part of the United States and Canada. So uh, they vetted me for singing, but I don't think they necessarily checked out my spiritual life at that time. Uh, so I was traveling with this group, and our message was a spirit-filled life, the deeper life. And uh, <clears throat> we're starting out the summer, and we're not seeing a lot of fruit in our ministry. And uh, I realized that my attitude was kind of bad. I was rather obstreperous, uncooperative, and just had a bad attitude. And so I walked out into the darkness of the night at Camp Haven, May, May of 1961, and I said, God, here we are every night singing these songs. With thy spirit fill me, fill my cup, Lord. We're singing songs like, Ho, everyone that's thirsty, come ye to the waters and be satisfied. And I feel kind of empty. Now I know that I know you. I know that you saved me. I know that you gave me new life. But I can't really sing these songs as though I really mean them. And I just want to come to you, dear God, for cleansing. And forgiveness. And I would like you to fill me with your spirit. I present myself to you, my whole self to you, totally and wholly. And I want you to use me. For your glory. The guys in the trumpet group was asking about that experience. And one guy, a little dubious, leaned over and said, uh, Can you tell me what difference it made? I said, Well, first of all, I had to go back to the group of Youth in One Accord, the rest of our group, and apologize for being such an idiot. And, and behaving the way I did. And they forgave me. And now the first thing is that we had youth in one accord who was really actually in one accord, even though nobody owned a Honda. Uh, so there we are. Made a tremendous difference. In the meeting the next night, I could really sing those songs. And God moved in that service, and the altar was filled. God just moved wonderfully across that congregation that night because we were in one accord. Now, I don't know what you want to call it, depending on your church background, you may call it fully yielding, total surrender, complete consecration, filling of the Spirit, progressive sanctification, but the Nike ad says just do it. Just make that once for all decisive presentation of your body to God. And with that, God is well pleased, right? And it is your only reasonable act of worship. So you think you worship this morning, worshiping did a great job when you're singing when you hear the sermon, when you're giving, when you're praying, when you're serving. Romans 12.1, an act of worship 
when you give God your body 100% his to represent him in your life. I don't really see how any of us could think how any of us could think that we could be a vessel fit for the master's use unless we take that step. Now I know what you're thinking. See, preachers know what the people are thinking. And you're thinking, okay, Ralph, here's what I heard. In May of 1961, God filled you with the Holy Spirit. You had an experience of your life that was transforming. You also said in your message so far that this is to be a decisive, once-for-all commitment. So here's the question you're thinking. Did you ever take it back? Did you ever take that consecration off the altar? Or did you keep that commitment since May of 1961? Well, the answer to that is, yeah, I did. I'm human. Human nature. Preachers are faulty. We don't do everything right all the time, do we? But I want to tell you this, and this is really critical. Whenever I did, there were two reasons. Either the world sucked me into its mold or zapped me, and I became friendly with the world. Or the second reason is that I was neglectful of meditating on God's word which is really the answer to the culture's pressures that you're going to face. So I need to face these two issues that will hurt my commitment. If I actually do Romans 12.1, and then I don't face the issues of Romans 12.2, I'm not going to be able to maintain the experience of Romans 12.1. Does that make sense? Think about that. I can be a vessel fit for the master's use when I know the master, when I yield my all to him, and when I faithfully walk in the word. So let me talk for a moment about the culture. Got to keep moving here. You make this full surrender to Christ, but watch out that you don't get zapped by the world, by the culture. J.B. Phillips said it, his translation, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. I believe that the church of Jesus Christ is constantly facing the challenge of the culture. We've got to deal with this stuff all the time. I like the old Southern Baptist evangelist Vance Havner. I heard him at Montrose Bible Conference. He's now in heaven, of course. But, but he said this. Listen, people. He said, you're, you're in the world, but not of it, saved out of it, to go back into it, to win others out of it. That's your only business in it. You're in the world, but not of it, saved out of it, to go back into it, to win others out of it, and that's your only business in it. Well, the word here, love not the world, world, uh, the world is the word cosmos, universe considered as a harmonious and orderly system, not chaos. We get our word cosmology from it. I have a note here that says, don't say cosmetology, that's something else. Right, lady? So Don Hines Wherever you are, there you are. Climb every mountain. Be a fan of the sound of music. Admire the beauty. But don't adopt the world's ways and cultures and norms and mores, right? 
You need a little more than that, so in the interest of time, I'm going to just skip down. I want to I quote Alan Dunn, because I think here is really where the battle rages. Alan Dunn's description of culture. When we speak of culture in the Bible, you encounter the language of powers and principalities and worldviews and false religions. And Dunn says this. Uh, he says, you have to look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Here's what it says. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying, destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Here's what we're up against. Thought systems. Speculations. Uh, lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. Paul says, don't forget, you have been given weapons that are divinely powerful to tear down fortresses, reasonings, and thought systems that people embrace to keep themselves at a distance from God. So listen. When you place yourself 100% on that altar in total surrender of your body to God, you are still going to be challenged by the thought systems that are part of this system, this cosmos. The speculations from our culture. It will challenge your commitment to Christ. So here's the main concern. Don't let the values, the norms, the ways, the beliefs, and the culture shape you and conform you and draw you from the commitment of Romans 12.1. Are you with me? There are so many illustrations in the Old Testament. I'm going to knock a couple out of my thoughts here. But one, I'll just give you one. Uh, the, the children of Israel said, God, we want a king. While the other nations have a king, God says, well, I want to be your king. And... Uh, God says, let me be your king. Well, we want a king like the other nations because they, they have a king to rule over them. Could we have a king? And they pressed and pressed, and finally God accommodated that and said, all right, I will give you a king, but I will pick the king. Wow. You read First and Second Kings, see how that worked out. That wasn't the ideal thing, was it? The ideal thing was let God be their king. Uh, let's just give a simple example. How about Hollywood? Uh, I said to my wife the other night, and, and by the way, if you saw any of these movies I'm talking about, I'm not judging you. Chris said before that we don't judge people here. So, But anyway, I said to my wife, you know, why, we got a little time. Why don't we go see a movie? She said, what would you like to see? Well, I said, you know, I kind of like Tommy. Let's go see Mission Impossible. She said, let me look it up on my phone. She gets her phone out. Okay, she's reading the trailer. She's looking at the trailer on the phone, and she says, Ah, you know what? There's a little too much violence in there for me. I really don't like that. And uh, besides, she said, Tommy's getting older. I said, What does that have to do with it? <laughs> so she said, Pick another one. So I said, Okay, let's go see The Equalizer with Denzel Washington. Well, she said, Let me look it up on my phone. So she looks the trailer up on the phone, right? Oh, she said, that's worse than Mission Impossible. There's so much violence in that. I won't feel comfortable. I said, okay, let's go to plan B. Plan B, we go to the library. We bring home a couple movies. 
And over the course of a week, we can keep them, so we'll be able to watch them. So I, we go to the library, get two movies, and I bring them home. She said, go ahead and put one in. So I put one in. I'm telling you, we didn't even view that for 10 minutes because it was so violent, so vulgar. And I know what you're thinking. You can't pick movies. You're really good at picking a wife because you stayed with her for 53 years, but you don't know how to pick movies. Anyway, I took it out. She said, put the other one, and I put the other one, and we couldn't stand it. Couldn't stand it. Actually, we didn't watch that for 10 minutes. We didn't even see those movies. We took them back to the library. But here's what happened. She says, you know what I'd like to see? And you know how men respond to that. Here goes a chick flick. Now, you know what I'd like to see? She says, I'd like to see a movie we saw many years ago. I'd like to see it again. I said, what's that? Well... You pastored a church in Kentucky. Our son was born in Kentucky. You went to seminary in Kentucky. Let's view the Triple Crown winner, Secretariat. I said, okay. If you can find it on Netflix. So she goes to Netflix and she gets Secretary up and we watch this. And I want to tell you, honestly, at the end of that movie, we were about moved to tears, even though we had seen it before. Because there was so much of redeeming value in that movie, and so much of biblical truth that was manifested in that movie. So all I'm saying is this. You've got to be careful. You've got to be careful what implodes in your mind. You make this total surrender of your bodies to Christ based on his mercies, a decisive once-for-all yielding, and then you allow the culture, the world, to squeeze you into its mold, you will not be able to walk in that surrender with joy. So what's a corrective? How can you protect your mind from the world's assaults? The corrective is that I can become an overcomer through meditating on God's word. Here's what I believe. If you don't have God's word and you're meditating on it, it's truth's regularly. The world is going to come upon you, implode in your mind, and zap you pretty good. And you're going to not be a vessel fit for the master's use. This is the critical step that follows Romans 12.1. It is the key to winning the battle. So, let me just read to you Second Peter. Oh, I love this passage. You want to win the victory? Second Peter says, his divine power has granted to us all all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now listen to this. By which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Want to be a fit vessel? Walk in that light. You do not want the world, you do not want to allow the culture to crush your commitment. The corrective is the word of God. And so are you in God's word? Are you reading, meditating, obeying, applying? <clears throat> when you embrace God's voice, God's ways, God's truths, you begin to build a renewed mind. As 12.2 says, be transformed 
be changed, be metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind that you may give approval to what, that, what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. I do want to tell you that there's more to it than that. <clears throat> but I think this is very, very basic. You want to read about more disciplines, uh, get the book by Dallas Willard, uh, entitled The Spirit of the Disciplines. Let's put a couple verses up, just as a reminder. Joshua 1.8, do we have that? Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good what? Good success. These scriptures are tied to success. Psalm 1, 1 to 3. Uh, how about that one? Oh, there it is. Blessed is a man who walks. I'm amazed what these people do back here. Who, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all, he, all that he does prospers. Success prospers. Psalm 119, 92 says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. James 1, to 25 talks about looking intently into the word of God. You can't live off a sermon a week. Do you know how to feed yourself from the word of God? Are you reading, meditating, obeying? The Bible says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So I'm, I'm just to close here. I'm going to suggest just a couple things. Remember the coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, wanted to get back to basics, and he held up a football to his team, and he said, gentlemen, let's get back to basics. This is a football. So I'm going to get back to basics. Read the Bible. Read it. Read it. Get a Bible reading plan. A lot of us fail right here. Don't be haphazard. Uh, my son and daughter-in-law's pastor, Paul Anderson, down at uh, Grace Valley Fellowship in Phoenixville, challenged his congregation on this and then came up with a plan for his congregation to get them reading the Word of God. Wonderful. Secondly, meditate. That means just keep turning it over in your mind like like. Uh, my wife was raised on a farm in Buffalo, like a, like a cow chewing the cud. Just keep turning it over, reflecting, looking intently. I use a notebook when I do that, and I'm writing things down just about as fast as I can. That comes to heart. Third would be memorize God's Word. Memorize. Do you know how skilled the Lord is at bringing something to your mind just at the right time? My sister back there was involved in Youth for Christ, quizzing. And so a lot of her scripture memory came out of that experience. But God's timing for recall is great if you got it up here. Number four is know what you're looking for in the Bible. It was C.S. Lewis that says, when you come to the scripture, it's not like learning a subject. It's like steeping yourselves in a personality. Capital P. And what that means is this. Our primary purpose for reading and meditating on the Bible is to meet Christ, to hear his voice, to see him more clearly, that we might love him more passionately. Amen?
I thought I might get one if I asked for it. All right. Very, very critical. One more thing. Results. What are you after when you're meditating on the Scripture? I would say this. Let God's Word, as you read and reflect and meditate on it, wash you, cleanse you, flow over your mind, and renew the mind. That's the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith in His truth. I can be a vessel fit for the Master's use. The good news today is that I don't have to wander around in confusion and wonder how I'm going to get there, how I'm going to make it. And the reason is that God's divine power has given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness to escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. God has made available everything you need to walk in victory and to be a vessel fit for the master's use. All right, got to close. Frank Sinatra popularized a song. And the song was All of Me. And when we do concerts in senior centers or independent living centers, churches, banquets, we always do this. Another trumpet player from Mechanicsburg and myself, we both play and sing this song. So Jeff is in the back there, and he was wondering if I would sing this. And I was going to say, no, I'm not going to sing today. I'm not going to sing all of me. Why not take all of me? Yeah, so that's the song. Jeff, that's for you. I'd like to paraphrase that. And, and the song goes, by the way, all of me, why not take all of me? Can't I? You see, I'm not good without you. Take my lips, I want to lose them. Take my arms, I'll never use them. I, you took the part that once was my heart, so why not take all of me? All of me, come and get all of me. Can't you see I'm a mess without you? Let me paraphrase that. Jesus saying to us, all of you, I need to have all of you. I want to take your lips and use them to speak my praise. And I want, I want all of you. Come and give me all of you. Can't you see? You're just a mess without me. I took the part that once was your heart. Now give me this new life, fully surrendered. Be a vessel fit for my use. A vessel unto honor. Prepared for every good work. It was D.L. Moody who said, The world has yet to see what God can do through a man fully yielded to him. And then he said, By the grace of God, I want to be that man. See, you don't just sing, I surrender all. You actually surrender all. And then you walk in the word. I can be a vessel fit for the master's use when I know the master and when I yield my all to him and when I faithfully walk in the word in meditation. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. You've given us so much. We are so grateful for your blessing and your power in our lives. You've called us to make this total 100% commitment in a decisive act before you. And then you called us to reject the ways of the world and we counter that by our faithfulness in the word of God. And I pray that you will help us to make the surrender and to make a new commitment to living faithfully in your word. 
pray in Jesus' name.